I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello, and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones. And this week I'm speaking with Erin McLucky, who teaches history at Sheffield University. This is her second appearance on the LRB podcast. Nearly a year ago, she wrote an eerily prescient piece on the lockdown imposed by the city of Florence when plague came to Italy in 1630, and we discussed that last March. Since then, she has written on Machiavelli and Fernand Baudel, and she has a piece in the current issue of the LRB on abortion in early modern Italy. It's a review of a book of that title by John Christopoulos published this month by Harvard University Press. Hello, Erin, and thank you very much for joining me again. Hi, Tom. It's really, really nice to be back. As with your quarantine piece last year, there are some startling similarities between then and now, as well as some striking differences. And in some respects, you suggest the way people thought about abortion 400 years ago was perhaps preferable to the way people think about it now, and we'll come on to that. But perhaps we should begin with some of the cases, some of the women's stories that Christopoulos has unearthed, mostly from court records, which all seem more or less horrifying to me, though I don't know if that's just my male squeamishness. (laughs) No, I think think they are, some of them, legitimately horrifying. I mean, I think this is what is so wonderful about Christopoulos's book is that he's gone into these archives, particularly of, of trial records, of court records, and has unearthed stories of abortion in which we can really kind of hear women's own stories in a way that I think we haven't been able to in previous kind of histories of sex and reproduction and pregnancy in the early modern period, especially in Italy. Yeah, some of their stories are quite horrifying, I think, especially for us with our quite kind of anesthetized view of abortion. When we think of abortion, we think of a um, sort of startlingly white clinic and everything is very clean and sanitized. And the picture of abortion that comes through Christopoulos's book is much messier, often more violent. We read about purgatives, right, which um, induced women women's abortions in ways that were often quite disturbing. And of course, other forms of abortion, like physical forms of abortion, where, you know, their partners might kind of beat them on the back or on the belly to induce abortion. All of these are, of course, absolutely horrifying and very violent stories. But it's a really interesting longer history of abortion than we usually get. And one of them, so for example, this a young woman called Maria, I don't know if that's, mm-hmm. we have a, her other name who you mentioned, who I suppose was repeatedly raped by her uncle and then who he got an abortifacient from a from a friar who also did exorcisms and sort of I don't know the idea of this yeah. this friar wandering the countryside of Lazio selling presumably abortifacients that they did work the the drugs that they used. Yeah. I mean that 
that story was so remarkable to me because we we have this this story from the trial records that Maria's uncle named Superia, with whom she was having this incestuous relationship, he sought out this itinerant friar to buy um, these sort of purgative herbs from. And the friar is 89 years old um, to avoid being tortured by the kind of inquisitors in the trial. He kind of claims his great age and he says, you know, I'm, I'm so old, I only have four teeth left in my mouth. And, and um, the judges actually look in his mouth to confirm that he only has four teeth. Um, and so sort of let him off without, <laughs> without being tortured. But I was just really struck by this image of, um, of someone who was selling a kind of physical purgative for abortion, but who was also dealing in sort of more supernatural forms of purgative, uh, like like exorcism, and that there might be a kind of formal similarity between those two things, which I thought was just so early modern and kind of opened up, um, yeah, very early modern ways of thinking about the body in which the, the sort of the mind and the body were not separate. Yeah, and uh, as you say, that um, possession by a demon and possession by a fetus were a difference of degree rather than than in kind, yeah, which is very much the opposite of the of the way I suppose we try to think about our bodies now. The idea of autonomy and control and and ownership of one's own body. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something I was really interested in. There's this really wonderful historian named uh, Lara Freidenfels who's written a book called "The Myth of the Perfect Pregnancy," which came out uh, last year, and she argues in that that with um, things like kind of very early pregnancy testing, um, extremely kind of sophisticated forms of medical imaging or, or fetal imaging, um, even with a kind of rise of consumer culture around kind of early pregnancy, women are sort of disciplined into becoming more and more invested in controlling even the very earliest stages of pregnancy. And that to me seems to be sort of diametrically opposite to, to early modern ways of thinking about pregnancy, which were really, you know, of course, women were encouraged to follow particular health regimes. Like, you know, they, noble women were told not to ride in, in carriages over the bumpy streets of Rome and things like that. Um, but I think there was a much, a sort of much, yeah, a different understanding of pregnancy that it might be kind of influenced by the stars and the atmosphere and um, even intestinal gas and things like this that um, were just sort of beyond beyond your control. And I, I kind of love that idea. And the other thing that's to the other side of the of sort of modern arguments, the modern arguments around abortion tend to be framed in the language of choice and control on one side, but about the, the sanctity of the fetus's life on the other. But but even that, mm-hmm. you know, that's now represented that pro-life people now will say that that's been, you know, true for since the first century AD. But in fact, that, that wasn't the case, was it? That the, um, mm-hmm. In the 16th century, there was an idea that the soul... Is that animation? Is that right? That animation happened after yeah. forty days. Yeah, that's right. Or forty days for boys and eighty days for girls because of some weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. So, in the current catechism of the Catholic Church, the Church kind of claims that abortion has been held as this, you know, incredibly grave sin since the first century by the Church, and it's yeah, that's just not true. And actually, for the majority of the Church's history, it's they've kind of followed a much more moderate understanding of abortion, um, where the severity, the sort of moral severity of abortion increases as, um, as you sort of get along the gestational age of the fetus. Um, so for most of the early modern period, 
the moment when the fetus was ensouled, when it was kind of animated with a soul, was the moment in which abortion became a mortal sin. And before that, it was a sin, but not um, a particularly grave one. And so for a male fetus, that was at 40 days. For a female fetus, that was at 80 days. That was partly related to kind of contemporary medical um, knowledge that kind of proceeded on the understanding that because um, the sort of female body was colder and wetter, it took kind of longer to congeal into human form in the womb. Um, so, yeah, so female fetuses were, were ensouled at a later stage. The obvious problem with that in a time before ultrasound is that you don't know um, what sex the fetus is um, until until it's born. So it kind of introduces this whole, yeah, this whole kind of layer of ambiguity to the question of abortion, which sometimes worked quite well for women, that it introduced a kind of area of uncertainty, which they could sort of strategically use in their favor. And Sixtus, Sixtus the Fifth. The Pope mm. tried to change that, right, with his with his papal bull of 1588. Mm-hmm. He said it was sort of the third in three years of trying to impose rules on, on sexual behaviour, following yeah. one on adultery and one on incest. Was that just because of his own, his personal morality, or was there something which had changed socially to mean that, that he, he introduced these rules? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, he seems to have been particularly interested in kind of policing sexual forms of moral deviance. So he was, um, yes, he issued a bull against adultery and then incest and then abortion all right in a row. Um, And he also, he actually um, kind of followed through with them as well. You know, he actually kind of, yeah, encouraged bishops and things to actually follow through with, with the bull. But I guess his kind of own program of reform has to be set within this wider context of the Counter-Reformation, which was this sort of wider movement in the Catholic Church in from the sort of second half of the 16th into the 17th century of um, internal reform that was partly kind of spurred on by the Protestant Reformation. And one piece of that reform was often related to the sort of morality of the wider sort of uh, people of the parish. And yeah, so that has to be set within that kind of wider context of what's often called confessionalization or the disciplining of, of, um, of the Catholic peoples of Europe. But you said that, they had, that it had to be reversed by his successor or by two years later because it was mm-hmm. unenforceable, presumably. Yeah, it just didn't, it just didn't work um, <laughs> because... You know, as I think, you know, perhaps one of the few things that are historically historically constant, women needed abortions and men did too. And no papal bull would would address, it would, you know, sort of um, intervene in that. So, so before the papal bull, women often confessed their abortion to their parish priest or sometimes to their bishop and were sort of quietly absolved. And that worked really well because it meant the kind of scandal of abortion didn't threaten the whole community. Um, it was a very private way of dealing with it. Um, after the papal bull, only the Pope could absolve you of abortion. And women didn't want to go to Rome to be absolved of abortion because it would mean making it public to everyone. So they just lived excommunicate, which, you know, could be incredibly kind of painful as a spiritual state, right, um, in the 16th century. 
And parish priests and bishops were writing to the Pope saying, you know, what, what should we do? We, <laughs> this is not working. Uh, we can't kind of um, make them go to Rome, but we can't absolve them ourselves. And it created a, a lot of confusion and a lot of difficulty for the clergy in particular who were trying to kind of deal with the really local social contexts of abortion, which, you know, were often quite ambiguous, um, often, yeah, needed needed some level of privacy to kind of to sort of make sure the scandal didn't get exposed. Often clergy themselves were involved in procuring abortions. So it just didn't work. And so a couple of years later, the new pope issued a bull uh, moderating previous the previous pope's stance. So there is a sort of funny, you know, two or three year blip in the end, at the end of the 16th century, which the overall effect of that was to sort of dramatize the problem of abortion. And it made it into something that was often then debated by theologians, by jurisprudence, by um, doctors and physicians um, in a way that it hadn't been before. And did that mean were, were most of the cases that Christopoulos writes about, were they after that papal bull? I mean, did it did it bring abortion into the courts? And I think actually the the trials kind of range across the whole period. Um, yeah, I don't think really that there's a kind of concentration after after the bull was issued. I think partly because it was just so it was just so unenforceable. And presumably related to that, I mean, the whole question of, I mean, obviously rates of miscarriage would have been very high anyway. Infant mortality mm-hmm. would have been incredibly high. Stillbirths much more common so the and as you say in the piece it's very you have to prove intent in many cases must be you know very difficult almost almost impossible so I suppose one of these questions is why it was a question of men wanting to control women's bodies and this sort of misogynistic fear of women's bodies being beyond the control of men was that a large part of yeah, I think that's certainly part of it. But I think there's, and this is something that Christopoulos draws out really well, there's a gap between the kind of prescriptive ideals of of law and theology and how priests and uh, judges actually interpreted and implemented those prescriptive ideals. Um, so yes, in a kind of ideal court scenario, there would be a forensic investigation into the body of the recently pregnant person, as well as the fetus to try to ascertain intent. And once that was firmly pinned down, then the woman could be tried and prosecuted and sentenced. But in practice, it basically almost never worked like that because it was just so difficult to figure out whether a fetus had been aborted or um, whether it was a stillbirth or indeed whether it had been killed shortly after birth as an infanticide. What I found so fascinating is the people who were responsible for figuring that out were midwives. Um, they were often these kind of forensically trained midwives um, who sort of had to inspect the fetal, the fetus's body for signs of violence and to try to kind of figure out what had happened retrospectively. And often they couldn't. They might make a kind of recommendation, but it was it was never really sort of proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. And then in terms of actual sentencing, I think Christopoulos says he doesn't really find examples of women being sort of uh, punished or, and sentenced for abortion, probably because, um, you know, they were, they were mostly absolved. And that, again, kind of relates to this issue of privacy and scandal, right? That 
it's actually better for the kind of community as a whole, for the woman and her family, if um, this can be resolved as kind of simply as possible. And as as something private that's not really the business of, of the church or the courts or anyone else. And so one of the cases that you write about with this difficulty of um, discerning intent in the in the woman that was Lucia, the young woman from Bologna. Mm-hmm. So do you want to talk a bit about her her story? Yeah, I I absolutely love I love her I love her case because I think her her voice just rings so clear out of out of the trial testimony. So she was investigated by the midwives for possibly a stillbirth at about seven months, possibly. Um, an abortion or an infanticide. Um, and the midwives examined the fetus, they examined her body, and it was all very ambiguous. But they did find that the fetus had had its umbilical cord torn rather than knotted. And so in their opinion, a tor- with a torn umbilical cord, the baby's breath could sort of would leave its body through the umbilical cord. And so this was evidence of of infanticide that Lucia had 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 um you know had killed the baby by by tearing its umbilical cord. But she was incredibly um kind of defiant about this and says that, you know, she didn't know why the baby died, but the baby was dead and there was nothing she could do about it. That is what God willed and that was that. And I just the way that she kind of presented her testimony, I found so so striking that she just had this kind of very clear idea that there was nothing she could have done about it. Yeah, in contrast to kind of the ambiguity of the way that the midwives tried to work out her intention. And presumably, I mean, I am totally believe her. I mean, not least because the idea that tearing rather than tying umbilical cord would allow the breast to escape is obviously nonsense. Yeah. And also, you know, if she had wanted to cover it up, she would have tied the umbilical cord, right? There's, she, she, there was nothing to hide. Yeah. And I suppose there's one that, you know, trust, an example of trust the woman to know, know her body better than mm-hmm. the investigating midwives or whoever. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, the, and the midwives in your piece, they are very, really interesting people. And with a, I mean, unsurprisingly, it's a very matter of fact yes. attitude yeah. to everything, really. I mean, you you quote one who describes, says that she throws aborted fetuses that do not have a soul in the latrine and I do not baptise them because they are not alive. It's sort of quite yeah. refreshing in some ways, matter of fact. Yeah, I found their testimony so, just so interesting. And also is the sort of the way that they thought about pregnancy and abortion, you know, they they took a kind of moderate view of abortion in which, you know, the earlier in pregnancy you were, the, you know, this just wasn't, abortion just wasn't a problem. And then, you know, it sort of became more severe as, as you sort of, uh, as, as the gestational age of the fetus increased. Some of the language that you, you quote them using is quite startling describing the fetus as a, a creatura or a, a pezzo di carne, a, a piece of meat. Mm-hmm. Or the other thing you say is ham. Is that prosciutto? What was the... You know, I don't actually know. I didn't look to see what the what the actual untrans- um, yeah, tra- untranslated Italian was. Um, but yeah, as, as it slipped out like a slice of ham was her, was her testimony. Yeah, which I think is sort of part of this, yeah, this sort of language of a piece of meat of, as a way of describing an unformed fetus. I suppose it sounds, it does sound quite shocking now, though maybe it shouldn't. I mean, would it have, 
presumably that it was quite it was seems to been so common that it wouldn't have been shocking at the time this was just as straightforward I don't know that it, yeah I don't know that it would have been shocking I mean I think the language of the creatura was very common in trial transcripts and things I think pezzo di carne was maybe a little bit less yeah a little bit less common that a creatura could refer to a, a living baby yes absolutely yeah and I suppose the other thing about carne means flesh yes. as well doesn't it so is it yeah. meat or flesh I suppose there is that ambiguity that um yeah definitely Ma- um in in one of Machiavelli's comedies he he um has one of his characters kind of justifying the procu- sort of procuring an abortion and says you know it's just a pezzo di carne it could be lost in a thousand other ways and you do get a sense of early pregnancy as you know a time when a pregnancy truly truly could be lost in in a thousand different ways and you know I think that's actually quite a refreshing idea too. I mean, you know, miscarriage rates, you know, as they are now are very high and we, you know, we're very high in early pregnancy. And I think, you know, we have a quite sentimental attachment to pregnancy from a very, very early stage. Um, but perhaps there, um, that kind of language, which seems shockingly cold to us is actually in some ways more aligned with the kind of biological reality of early pregnancy. One point in your piece, you make a comparison with modern day Kentucky where women have to have an ultrasound and listen to the fetal heartbeat before deciding whether or not to have have an abortion and something that initially recently that last year the new the um, regional president of, of Umbria the region in central Italy tried to introduce a law saying that any abortion any has to, that the woman has to spend three days in hospital even if it's however early even if it's just taking the pill and this is being presented this was presented as being concerned for women's health Mm-hmm. But obviously, its main effect would be to a massive disincentive to. And anyway, that's now been overruled, and hospital beds are needed for for other things now. Anyway, but but yeah. there is this this sort of well, I suppose you can say pretense that anti-abortion rules are for the sake of women's health. And was that sort of hypocrisy present in the in the 16th century, in the 17th century too, or were they? Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean. I think one of the things that I was really surprised by in the book is that there was an idea of a therapeutic abortion in the 16th or 17th century that, you know, if if a woman's life and health were thought to be at risk, that she actually could seek out a medical or therapeutic abortion in a way that was sort of sort of ambiguously situated in relation to the law, right? It wasn't, she would never be prosecuted for it. I think Christopoulos argues that this was much easier for wealthier women to pursue um, because they could have access to sort of the best physicians and things that could could take care of them. And presumably that, I mean, was an import as the number of women who died in childbirth must have been horrifyingly high. Yeah. So pregnancy is, was dangerous. And so that, you know, they were... Yeah, yeah. And I think, and and that was understood, right? Pregnancy was seen as something that was, um, that could be really dangerous to women. And they were sort of encouraged to, right, not ride in carriages, uh, not dance, not have particularly vigorous sex um, to kind of try to preserve themselves in the pregnancy. Yeah, pregnancy was definitely seen as something that's sort of pathological. I guess the interesting thing with the therapeutic abortions is if you were a kind of married, wealthy woman with access to the best physicians, this was something that you could access. And it was almost as if um, 
you had to sort of prove that you wanted the pregnancy, that this was something you planned and wanted before you were actually able to access an abortion. Um, so women with lots of children already might be able to kind of access a therapeutic abortion, you know, in a way that a single servant woman or something absolutely could not because there'd be sort of doubt cast on her intentions. And what sort of rules or laws or restrictions or what, I know what the right word is, well, what was the church's view on contraception? I mean, obviously, it was a fairly hit and miss business then, so it not replied. But that is really interesting. I don't, I don't actually know if there were kind of specific laws or you know, sort of um, prescriptions from the church on contraception in that period. Certainly, social historians and kind of historians of the family from the sort of 1960s have shown that fam- early modern families engaged in child spacing and family planning. Um, so this is whether that was through kind of contraception methods or also, you know, it was probably augmented by abortion. But because married couples you know, procured an abortifacient um, or purgative drug and took it at home, you know, this was not a scandal. It never would have made it into the kind of records of any early modern trial. It's just a history that is essentially totally obscured from our view um, because it just was probably quite normal. So the the women who tended to be put on trial tended to be unmarried. Yeah, overwhelmingly single women. So both um, kind of younger single women, often domestic servants, or sometimes interestingly older women who are widowed, both of whom I think were sort of perceived to potentially pose a threat to the social order right through various forms of sexual deviance. Um, and so that's why they kind of end up in these trial records more often than than married women. Right. So they're seeking an abortion or appearing to or being suspected of it is also because it's evidence of sexual impropriety that these women who who yeah. also would it would have been thought shouldn't have been having sex and here is the evidence that they were. So to some extent they're being punished for that. Yeah, definitely. I mean I think the interesting thing about that is it sort of cuts both ways. So, you know, a young single woman might be might be sort of blamed for her abortion because of a kind of sense, the sense of an unbridled sexuality, right, that she was was having sex outside of marriage. And, um, you know, that this was, yeah, this was the kind of a symptom of, of her, of, of lust or of unbridled sexuality. And that also actually in the early modern period applied to men too. So if women were cast as victims then it was men's kind of rapaciousness and their sexuality, which was blamed in the courts for getting the woman into the predicament in the first place. So one of the kind of differences I kept thinking about as I was reading this book is that men are are everywhere in these accounts of abortion in early modern Italy. And they are really nowhere in um, kind of discussions of abortion now. And I found that really fascinating. I mean, it's it's certainly a kind of you know, it's not a sort of uniformly positive thing, right? It's a it's a reflection of a society in which women were either sort of victims or these kind of agents of lust, right? But it certainly is a very striking difference to see to see men take such a important and sort of um, prominent role in these stories of abortion. And would would they be prosecuted as well? They were often kind of included in, in the trials against women. So, you know, for example, in that case of Maria and Superio, he was also dragged in front of in front of the judges and asked about where he procured the abortive fascians and things like that. But again, not often sentenced um, for the same reason that it's it was sort of perceived that, you know, there was a social need for abortion. Judges understood that and they often took quite a lenient view, especially when compared to the sort of prescriptive actual laws that they were supposed to be following. 
yeah, because they understood the kind of local social context in which couples saw abortion. Right. And so the, the men involved would, they'd, at their annual confession at Easter, they'd, they'd confess to it and that would be... Yeah. Yeah. And that's that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So one of the ways in which it seemed, yeah. I mean, as you say, there's you know not much that's enviable about the lives of, of the people in Christopolis's book, but that's one respect in which it is almost possible to to envy envy them. Yeah, I mean, this is it's just um, it's something that I just kept thinking about. I think when when I was sort of you know telling people that I was was writing this piece on the history of abortion, the first thing I think that that comes to mind is the sort of 20th century history of pre-legalization, right? These kind of, the idea of the backstreet abortionists and, you know, the the clothes hanger or the knitting needle and this like just absolutely violent and traumatic moment in abortion's history. But I, you know, in this kind of early modern history, it's, you know, it's, it's not by any means a kind of utopia or, a, a, you know, sort of uniformly positive story. But I think there were certain... Yeah, the inclusion of men, some of the ways that ambiguities could be resolved in the favor of kind of leniency and an understanding of social context and things like that, that, yeah, they'd look kind of refreshingly different from how we might imagine the history of abortion if we only think about the kind of the moment of the backstreet abortionist in the sort of, you know, 1950s. And you you begin your piece describing your own experiences of, of abortion and pregnancy, and um, we're very lucky to have got you on the podcast before you go on maternity leave um, on Monday, which will be before this is published. So thank you very much. Um, I mean, when you told people that you're writing this piece, when you were pregnant yourself, did, did people raise that as a, say, oh my God, you're writing about abortion and you're pregnant. What's that like? Or was that? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they, they did. I think, um, yeah, the idea of a, a very visibly pregnant person writing about abortion is, I think, quite, in some ways, quite strange. But I think also being very pregnant, pregnancy is sort of all I'm thinking about at the moment. And so it was a really interesting place from which to write the piece and kind of reflect on my own experiences of both abortion and pregnancy and how they kind of resonated with this much longer, yeah, this much longer history in a way that I, I find they don't resonate so much with kind of necessarily contemporary discourses around both abortion and pregnancy. You know, this idea that it's sort of your responsibility to control every aspect of pregnancy has felt so alien to me over the last nine months. And so the idea that there is there is something kind of ungovernable about the pregnant body. I, I loved the idea that I found in this book. And yeah, so while it was in some ways quite strange to be, to be thinking about abortion while being very pregnant, I think the ways that we think about abortion shape how we think about pregnancy and yeah, so some of that I found really interesting and refreshing. And you talk about the way that the um, the Cartesian mind-body duality, which seems to be quite a strong part of the way that we think about pregnancy and abortion now and the idea of having control over your body as if you and your body are, are separate and that that, mm. I mean, obviously that didn't, in the period that you write about in the piece, that didn't exist. Well, I suppose there's the body and the soul and the idea of animation. So in some sense it did exist, but at the same time, mm-hmm. the sort of ghost in the machine idea was... Yeah, it was, de- it was definitely a, a, pre, a pre-Cartesian moment. I mean, I think the, the idea that you 
can choose abortion or control pregnancy can be really politically useful, right? Um, the kind of the image of the clothes hanger, right, is a really a really powerful one. And, you know, if you went, went to the Women's March back in whenever it was, 2016, 2017, um, or kind of anti or, or you know, pro-abortion protests now, the kind of the idea that we won't go back is really, is really, really powerful. And in that context, the idea that abortion is a right and a choice, I think, yeah, is a really, really powerful idea. But I think sometimes the kind of political language of abortion overwhelms your ability to think about what that experience actually meant on a more personal level. Um, and the idea that abortion was a choice did not resonate with my own experience of abortion. Erin McLucky, thank you very much. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Tom. You can read Erin McLucky's piece in the current issue of the LRB, along with Stephen Shapin on smallpox, Jeremy Harding on France's problem with Islam, Marina Warner on angels and saints, and Marza Mengiste on Ethiopia's long war. Thanks for listening. You can find a link to LRB pieces relevant to this episode in the description below.